Welcome to TD Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hey everyone, Mark Bianchi here from the TD Cowan Energy Research Team with another installment of our Energy Transition Podcast. In today's episode, my guest is Dan Poneman, CEO of Centris Energy, formerly known as the United States Enrichment Corporation. Prior to Centris, Dan spent several years in the U.S. government in roles such as Deputy and Acting Secretary of Energy. He's been a White House Fellow and Special Assistant to the President and held Director positions at the National Security Council, which involved development and implementation of policy in areas such as peaceful nuclear cooperation. Uranium enrichment has gained a lot of attention on the back of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and concerns about supply where Russia is nearly half of the global enrichment capacity. Add to that concern, the U.S. has essentially gotten out of the enrichment business. So there's not only an energy security risk, but a national security risk. Centris is in a unique position to capitalize on reshoring U.S. enrichment capabilities, but it's a complex situation. The competitors are state-owned, and any effort in the U.S. is going to need a healthy dose of government support. So let's get some enrichment on this important part of the nuclear ecosystem with our guest, Dan Poneman. Maybe just to get going here, can you give us a two-minute introduction on on the business? You know, what are the two divisions, um, and how are you thinking about their progression over the next several years? Sure, Mark, happy to. And first of all, thank you very much for having me. A lot of people have uh, looked at me quizzically when I say I lead Centris, and I say, well, you might not have heard of us, but our first name was the Manhattan Project, and it's true. Oak Ridge, Tennessee. 1944, the effort to develop a technology to enrich uranium for the uh, purpose of the Manhattan Project was, in fact, the genesis of our company. We became, so to speak, the Atomic Energy Commission, the whole uranium enrichment enterprise of the U.S. government that was used to support our nuclear weapons arsenal, that was used to create all of the high enriched uranium for the naval reactors and our submarines and carriers, were uh, performed in the Atomic Energy Commission. That eventually became the Department of Energy, which eventually privatized this enterprise. The only country in the world to privatize uranium enrichment was the United States. That happened in 1998. The two divisions in the company uh, reflect the two activities. Number one is trading in enriched uranium. That's our LEU segment. Uh, and the other uh, segment is the what we call uh, CTS, Centris Technical Solutions. And that's where we're developing the technology to enrich uranium anew. And uh, to keep it under two minutes, I'll just say now, we can go into it later, that uh, the way to think about it is really two complementary businesses, uh, a trading arm that uh, buys and sells uh, material, depending on market conditions of the day, uh, and a uh, production segment, which has been unfortunately out of uh, production for a number of years, but now excitingly is back into production as of October 11th. We just launched our first uh, new production of enriched uranium in a new facility to begin production in the United States since 1954. Su- super impressive stuff. I want to ask one question that's come up sort of since we put this this recording on the calendar, and it's that Centris has announced a, a CEO transition uh, where Amir Bexler is going to become CEO on, on January 1st of 2024. So maybe you can talk about um, what went into that decision and what you're going to be doing. I believe any strong corporation uh, has to have a very thorough and thoughtful succession planning approach. We've had that. Frankly, I joined this company in, in 2015, not 
not thinking it would take uh, quite this long to get the, the job done. I intended to stay about five years initially, but uh, we basically were able to clean up the balance sheet. We were able to improve our market cap substantially, like 20-fold in the last eight years. We were able to restore our book of business. We hadn't signed contracts for a long time. We were able to put our pension uh, liabilities uh, into a much uh, sounder framework from being a multiple of our uh, market cap to a mere 5% of our market cap. And really excitingly, we were able to secure contract with the U.S. Department of Energy uh, cost share basis to build a new advanced cascade of centrifuges to make this new exciting kind of fuel we'll talk more about, high assay, low enriched uranium. And candidly, I wanted to see it through to its initial production, and we have. So, uh, you know, it's almost nine years for me, I think, uh, is healthy for an organization. And frankly, uh, we said publicly many, many times that it's 42 months to build the next cascade. And I think it's uh, the right thing. It's the right time for the company. And we have uh, in Amir Vixler, a, a, a young guy uh, who's got uh, engineering background. He's got business background. He's got C-suite uh, experience, both at Orono and GE. And so it's a very, I think, good thing for the company, a good thing for our shareholders. Yeah. One of the questions that came up from investors um, on the back of that announcement is, you know, you, you've got a long history uh, of dealings in inside the Beltway. Um, and the thought is, you know, you've been sort of instrumental in the company's dealings with the government. And, and now that may be going away. Can you talk about the continuity there? I think there's always going to be uh, continuity. Uh, you know, frankly, one of the things that's most encouraging, Mark, about what's happened over the last several years is Early in the, my tenure, frankly, we were a little bit of lonely voices uh, crying in the wilderness, but now you're in the business and so am I. Anytime you pick up uh, an NGO report, an anal analyst report, everyone's talking about the imperative uh, for enrichment. And uh, the first legislation passed under the new Speaker of the House of Rec Representatives was the appropriations for energy and water, which included $2.4 billion for enrichment. The last time the president of the United States uh, sent a supplemental funding request up to the Congress included $2.2 billion for enrichment. The last time the Senate voted on the Nuclear Fuel Security Act, it was 96 to 3. So I think, you know, uh, it has been, you know, a very much of an effort to get people to understand the importance of this. But I think that Rubicon, frankly, has been crossed. And I think really now, just like the rest of the industry, Mark, we'll probably talk about this on the reaction side as well. Uh, what the story is going to turn into is a story about execution and about, uh, you know, really excellence in project management and to go from where we've been to a full up uh, large facility able to produce SWU for both advanced reactors and conventional reactors. I think it, it, it needs, I think, exactly the kind of skill set that uh, Amir Vexler is going to bring to the table here. Okay, that's great. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about the history. You introduced it a little bit, but some some investors may remember USEC and, and there was a bankruptcy there. Uh, I know that was before your time, but maybe you could talk about you know what happened there, what led to the bankruptcy, um, and how is the business and the balance sheet different today? It was and it wasn't before me because I was actually working for President Bush 41 and the National Security Council when they turned then uh, the operating arm of the Department of Energy into a government corporation. And uh, I was not there for the end of it, but I was there for the discussions in the Clinton administration, which led to the IPO. Basically, here's what happened. And, and, and uh, there's a musical called Pal Joey, which has a 
song called, called If You Ask Me, I Could Write a Book, and I certainly could, so I won't take that much time now, but I'll say basically the following. Uh, it may or may not have been a good idea to privatize. Once privatized, there were basically two things, major things going on in the company. There were three, originally three large old technology, Cold War era gaseous diffusion plants, right? And by the time the company was privatized, there were only two of them operating uh, at uh, Portsmouth, Ohio and Paducah, Kentucky. The one at Portsmouth closed uh, rather early in the uh, com company's life in about 2001 or so. Basically, for example, when I took office in 2009 as deputy secretary, about half uh, of the uh, production of the company came out of that last Paducah enrichment plant. Where was the other half coming from? Well, again, back when I was with President Bush 41, the Soviet Union broke up. People were terrified that the Soviet Union would turn into four nuclear weapon states, Kazakhstan, Belarus, uh, as well as uh, Ukraine and Russia. And uh, they were terrified that scientists would flee uh, all over the world, that materials and technology would end up in North Korea and Iran. And uh, one of my chunks of responsibility at the National Security Council was to figure out what to do with all that high enriched uranium that came out of the Soviet stockpile. And uh, we decided a rather ingenious thing, which is to buy 500 metric tons, which was the equivalent of 20,000 bombs worth, and blend it down to be uh, low enriched uranium commercial reactor fuel. So the other half of USEC's company was this 20 year deal. It was basically the most successful arms control deal in history. Uh, to blend down that material. So uh, long story short, that contract uh, seemed, when I was a young guy negotiating it, to be forever, but 20 years ended in 2013. And so that ended, uh, and that took away half of the company's production. And then Fukushima crushed the enrichment market since Japan closed 54 reactors, Germany closed eight reactors, and everybody else put their plans on ice. So the uh, uh, market effectively collapsed. And uh, the highest cost production was this old Paducah plant. So that shut down too. So in six months, the United States went from 25% to 0% market share effectively. Uh, and, um, and not surprisingly, we could not, the company at that time could not make its debt payments, went through chapter 11. And uh, after it came out of chapter 11, that's when I came on board. Uh, oh, and how is the business and balance sheet different today? Well, you know, when I took over, Utilities are very cautious, you know this very well, and they were not really uh, enthusiastic about buying uh, long-term commitments from a company that just came out of Chapter 11, nor were they eager to make long-term contracts with a country that had a cliff maturity in 2019 when the delivery schedule called for deliveries in 2024, et cetera, et cetera. So we were able to regain the confidence of the U.S. fleet operators, uh, and we got into those order books. We were able to do a lot uh, to refinance uh, that long-term debt. We had to put out some preferred to save our uh, net operating losses, and we were able ultimately to bring all that preferred back in. And so uh, our balance sheet is much stronger. We got like $200 million of cash on the balance sheet. Uh, and really, uh, even though now the uh, LEU segment, our trading business, still accounts for about 75% of our revenues and almost all of our margin, the really exciting thing is we are now really at the front edge of a new wave uh, of uh, expansion of this very uh, small but very exciting demonstration cascade to satisfy both uh, the advanced reactor markets that need this special kind of so-called high assay, low enriched uranium or HALU, as well as uh, those utilities who are very eager to get off of dependence on Russian imports of low enriched uranium fuel. So it's really an incredibly exciting moment for the company.
before we get into part of that, maybe you could give us an overview of the sort of the enrichment industry today. And I guess somewhat what we're going to find out, I suspect, when you go through this is that the U.S. isn't doing any enrichment. And there was an opportunity for us to stand up all this enrichment capability, but we didn't do it. And I'm curious as to, you know, why we didn't do it or what your perspective is on, you know, what failed um, in that yeah. in that progression. Yeah. It's, you know, I really might want to write a book about this because uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting story. It's curious, uh, Mark, the global enrichment industry now is basically dominated completely by four state-owned enterprises. There's one in Russia, there's one in China, there's one in France, and there's a European uh, entity known as Urenco, one-third British, one-third Dutch, one-third German. Uh, the United States uh, has fallen out completely. Uh, the United States uh, in 1985 had about 27 million what we call separate work units, uh, which is the unit of account for enrichment. We now have uh, almost zero. We have just a tiny bit on this new plant that we've just started. Uh, and Russia, guess what, has 27 million swoop. So uh, the space that we used to dominate and occupy basically has been completely displaced by Russia. Russia actually has, uh, even after a couple of years of people trying to reduce dependence, they still have like basically 44% of the installed base to enrich uranium. They are still the leading supplier of enriched uranium globally. Uh, United States still relies for a little bit more than 20% of its enrichment requirements from Russia. Europe relies uh, for about 30%. Uh, why isn't the United States doing this? Well, that's a long story too. But the bottom line is at the very moment. So first, when the company privatized 1998, uh, they tried for a couple of years to work on a, a form of laser isotope enrichment, which ended up not working out for the company. I wasn't there. I can't tell you any details. Uh, but um, then they did try to pivot to the basic current uh, flavor of the month when it comes to enrichment are these so-called gas centrifuges. And it so happens that at the very time that they were putting together a very large plan and, and actually selling uh, a prospective output of a big plant that they were going to build right there in Piketon, Ohio, was at the exact same time that the Fukushima happened and the market collapsed. I was actually the Deputy Secretary of Energy at that time. I chaired the Credit Review Board. And candidly speaking, because uh, A, the market had collapsed, and B, along with the market collapsing, the company at that point was in distress, uh, that uh, the underwriting criteria of the um, loan program office were not met by that loan application. And uh, basically, the loan application failed. So the bottom line was uh, the United States fell into uh, complete dependence, having gone from the world's biggest exporter of enrichment, became the world's biggest importer of enrichment in an abject position in which we basically had no domestic production. It's 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 analogous, Mark, in some ways to what happened with Germany on natural gas. They just kind of uh, were lulled into complacency and, uh, and, and that's what happened. And we just kind of fell out of the uh, market. And then, you know, for a number of years, uh, some of us were saying, you know, this isn't good. We really need to think about supply chain resilience. We really need to think about multiple sources of supply. Um, and it wasn't until COVID that people really started waking up to the challenges created by having not resilient uh, supply chains. And semiconductors kind of reiterated that point. And now, now comes the Ukraine war and people realize, well, gee whiz, it's the same thing for uranium enrichment. You just can't be safe and secure and energy secure as a country without having a domestic source of enrichment. 
all all the enrichers are state-owned, as you mentioned, um, and Centris is, would like to become um, a participant in that market. Does it make sense for a public company to be in the enrichment business if all the competitors are state-owned? Well, look, we have to uh, take life uh, as it pre- presents to us, and, and I would say the following. It absolutely makes sense for the United States not to be 100% dependent on foreign state-owned enterprises. I don't care where they're from, right? It's just, it's just, it's just not resilient. It's not good market architecture. You will not find a single uh, U.S. utility CEO who says, "You know, I I really would like a single point of failure in my fuel chain." It's just, you know, you don't hear that sentence. Um, that having been said, uh, every single enrichment plant in the history of the world has been 100% bond paid for by governments. So. Is anybody advocating that the United States should renationalize this sector? No. However, I think it's now become, I believe, conventional wisdom that we need a public-private partnership, right? And that if the United States is going to get back on the field, that we need to have government defray uh, some of those upfront capital uh, costs that every other government has uh, provided for every other enricher. And I have every confidence that once we are put back on a level playing field, that when it comes to OPEX and competing in the market, uh, you know, on a going forward basis, I think once we're back in the field of play on the uh, back of one of those public-private partnerships, I, I am very confident that we can secure very significant market share. Uh, and, and, and I think it's good for the market, too, to have multiple sources of supply that, that assures resilience of supply, that gives you fallbacks in case God knows what happens to any particular supplier and, a, and a, it gives you a price competition. So I think a healthy market really is crying out for another supplier and, and frankly, another American supplier. Okay, great. Um, I, w- I want to jump into the the LEU segment here a little bit and correct me if my understanding is wrong, but really you're not doing any enrichment. You're just, this business is a broker for, for maybe lack of a better term between enrichers and, and utilities. But I guess if that understanding is correct, like why why wouldn't enrichment companies just be selling directly to the customers? What's why are you needed here? Well, first I have to make just a slight uh, distinction here, which is it's only twenty kilograms so far, but we're uh, you know about to make nine hundred kilograms. But <laughs> we are actually producing Halo, and and by the way, we are the only producer of Halo outside of Russia. So it, it's small, but that's us. So we are producing. Point one, point two on LEU. Currently, you are correct. Uh, and uh, why does that make sense? Well, in the years when like 96 straight quarters from Fukushima, basically till about August 2018, the market fell consistently uh, from like $160 per swoop down to about $35 per swoop. It was a very tough time in the market. And the United and, and Centris was in a favorable position because there was so much capacity floating around and the demand was slack that we were able to kind of scarf up large quantities because we were willing to buy long-term and in bulk, right? And so that allowed us to take long-term positions, which then allowed us actually to compete uh, and, you know, compete and win uh, in a number of cases in competition with the suppliers. It's just the nature of kind of a a, a small market of that character. Uh, that That is why that made sense. And I think opportunistically, you see any number of companies, including in our sector, that have an option to um, exercise their trading arms or exercise their production arms, kind of there's a 
uh, you know, uh, uh, an arbitrage that people smarter than I am in finance can decide, you know, what point you tip from production to uh, to trading. But I think there's strength in having the capacity uh, to do either. How this will shake out in the years ahead? I mean, now the market's very tight. So the uh, model that we were applying very, very successfully in 2017, 2018 probably wouldn't work so hot, you know, now that uh, prices have spiked the way they have. But uh, you've seen this market mark uh, long enough to know that it's cyclical. So I think it's a strength for the company to have going forward uh, a kind of producer procure option to satisfy our customers' needs. Let, let's say enrichment becomes a big business for you guys. Is it sort of the idea that this, the LEU segment and the, and the long-term supply contracts you have sort of shrink and you don't, you don't re-up them for, for kind of the reasons you just stated and then you know the uh, technical solutions and enrichment really become the core of the business or... Or would you expect to just keep layering in longer-term supply contracts to, to keep the business this side of the business going? Yeah. Well, I don't think there's like a doctrinal or religious answer to this question. Clearly, uh, we're very excited about building out new capacity. And clearly, as a producer, it gives you control over your cost structure and your production schedule. And there are clearly advantages to being a producer. But in terms of uh, calibrating how much production versus how much trading, I think that's, candidly speaking, more of a tactical decision that is going to be informed very much by market conditions as they evolve. I think, you know, the way I think about it, Mark, is once we're up running in the field of play, we will have the tactical flexibility to make judgments based on the market prevailing conditions of the day, our cost structure of the day, the, the input prices for enrichment themselves may vary from time to time as, uh, as electricity rates vary, for example, as uranium prices vary, for example. So I think it's going to be a continuous analytical process that uh, you know people at the corporate level of the company will have to decide. But the, I think that the predicate to being able to do that is getting a, a significant production capacity up and running then you have the tactical flexibility, if that makes sense, to uh, call balls and strikes in terms of what you're going to do in you know Q1 versus Q2 in terms of uh, production schedules and and uh, uh, sales contracts and so forth. Okay, well maybe we can talk a little bit more about the contracts and maybe what drives profitability. Um, so you've got some long-term contracts through the end of the decade, more or less, and and I think there's you know those those were set at low prices. And I think one of them was, was reset at a lower price, the 10X contract. In reading the language around how those work, it, it seems like there's some adjustment for market prices. So they would, you know, as you mentioned, the swoop price has gone up quite a bit here. Would those costs then go up? And, and what really drives the margin here? And I know from quarter to quarter, there can be some volatility, but as we look at it over kind of a 12-month period, like what drives the margin in this business? I remember... When I was in practicing law, uh, I was asked why a certain person was the best managing partner in town. And uh, the answer was because he understood that profit uh, equaled revenue minus cost, right? So our contracts are a mixture of fixed and variable components. A lot of that, frankly, is not uh, publicly disclosed. So I, I have to refer folks to our uh, Qs and Ks and so forth. But uh, there are in both our sales contracts and our supply contracts variables of, of both. But I would say that the cost 
variables are trailing. And therefore, you know, overall, uh, having hit the market, frankly, at just the right point in terms of our cost structure in 2018-ish, you know, plus or minus, uh, it, that's, to be very frank, one of the things that propelled us into uh, profitability in the subsequent years. And, uh, and so I think that, that overall architecture uh, is still uh, in place. We will, are able to benefit from, uh, and we're sorry for you know, the war reasons why the market has spiked, but obviously prices are up. We're selling into that rising market. Uh, and the costs do rise, but uh, not necessarily as rapidly as the as the prices. Okay, and I think um, of those contracts, so you have one with Arano, um, and the other ones with Tenex or uh, Ross Adam, so the Russian um, enricher, and I think that's a larger one. I've heard some utilities aren't accepting Russian enriched uranium. You know, maybe you have more supply than demand. So, so how is that affecting margins? And then, how should investors think about the risk? If there is some sort of a, um, you know, limitation by the U.S. government on on these Russian enriched supplies, yeah, this is a uh, obviously a huge, a huge question for our industry. And and candidly speaking, Mark, it shows you, I don't know how else to put it, how short sighted people were in past years to become so complacent. Uh, and I, I could cite, but I won't chapter and verse on very uh, glib statements uh, in past years about why this is really not a problem. Uh, obviously, now that Ukraine has happened, we see that it is a problem. But the, the, the you can't argue with the crude facts. And the crude facts are Russia has 44% of the world's enrichment capacity. There's not nearly enough non-Russian enrichment to fuel the world's reactors. I'm going to give you a, a, a broad, but you know at least indicative uh, measure of that. Global demand for enrichment without Russia is 48 million swoop per year, separate work units. Global supply without Russia is 33 million swoop per year. Uh, that gap of 15 million swoop per year is equal to 100% of U.S. demand per year. And then you have to add on to that, Europe also gets about 10 or 11 million swoop per year from Europe's, uh, from Russia. And so, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, they get a 30% of their uh, enrichment from Russia. The United States gets a little over 20%. So the bottom line is uh, if that product were to immediately come off the market, it would create a lot of distress in a lot of places, right? And uh, uh, I think a lot of utilities have, I'm sure, done a lot. Everyone's done a lot to see how they can mitigate the risk, but there's no getting around the fact that you can't surge enrichment production in a matter of weeks or even months. It's going to take years. And that's why you would not be surprised to read the formal position of the Nuclear Energy Institute is that we should wean off of dependence on those Russian imports at the same rate that we replace it with domestic capacity. You know, there's a difference between the uh, uranium enrichment market and the oil market where the United States, for example, is the world's largest producer. There's lots of other suppliers. It's just much more concentrated in Russia when it comes to enriched uranium. So... I think, candidly speaking, Mark, why you've seen this growing consensus, both sides of the aisle, both sides of the hill, both Senate and House realizing this, both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, it's because of the frank recognition that we really have to get off the dime. And the only real permanent sustainable solution to uh, over-dependence on any one foreign enricher, including Russia, 
is for us to get back into the field and build domestic capacity. That's where we're going next with the, the conversation. So that's a, a good segue. You touched on this briefly in the introduction, but talk about the enrichment capabilities that you have and the efforts you've got. And what is American Centrifuge? Is that is that dead now? Or is that essentially the, the basis of the technology for Halu? Just help us understand those, those yeah. different parts of the, uh, the portfolio. The technology, Mark, goes back to technology developed 1980s at the U.S. Department of Energy, the technology that was advanced to build uh, what was going to be called the American Centrifuge Plant in uh, the years prior to Fukushima, frankly. We have continued to improve that technology. That's why the machine we now deploy is called the AC100M. The M stands for modified. We feel great about it. It's now it's, it's producing HALU today. Uh, it's it's a continuous uh, process of, of technical improvement, but we're now very happy with the design that we've got. Uh, the capabilities that we have, uh, I, I think it's very important to note, in, in, in addition to this fantastic technology, we've got a like fantastic workforce. And not only is there subject matter knowledge and engineering skills, but uh, these folks are great at project management. You've spent a lot of time in our industry, I know, and I can tell you that our team has uh, produced 15 in a row successful projects, in other words, on time and on budget. And you know that is the brass ring in nuclear capital construction. And uh, they, they haven't all, all been capital construction projects, to be clear, but we have an outstanding project management team. That's where we are today. I was very happy to host a lot of folks from uh, uh, different uh, walks of life, from utilities, from uh, manufacturers, from trade unions, from uh, lots of folks uh, in October at the site in Pike. And I think the two things that people came away impressed by were, number one, it's really fantastic technology uh, that we've deployed. But number two, if you see the physical plant, there's like $6 billion of taxpayer and private capital in a phenomenal facility which got the uh, square footage of the Pentagon. And we have room for thousands of machines to go in there. So if we had the right kind of demand signal uh, and financial support with that, uh, we do need some help from the government. Uh, boy, we're off to the races. What's the difference in making HALU versus LEU? Is it just a matter of doing more cycles in the centrifuge? or, or what, what? That's the tricky thing uh, or the not tricky thing about uranium enrichment technology is it's, it's just think of like octane on your car. You know, you take this uh, uranium ore out of the ground, only 0.7% is uranium-235, and then you start, uh, you turn it into a gas and you spin it, and you use centrifugal force to separate the lighter from the heavier isotopes. And it's the same spinning process that will take you to 4 or 5%, which is low-enriched uranium, that'll take you to 19.75%, which is uh, high-assay LEU or HALU, which will take you to 90% which is for a naval reactor or actually for a weapon, possibly. So that's why this is a very sensitive and, and heavily controlled technology. So that the physical principles are identical. Uh, and that's why people care a lot. Like when Iran is going to three or 4%, they're worried because that's uh, there's no kind of uh, glass ceiling, so to speak. There are differences in terms of uh, balance of plant and plumbing and so on and so on. But the physical process of enrichment is the same. Mm -hmm. And maybe just while we're talking about the process, you have a an agreement, I guess, with Oak Close is the right way to describe it, 
where you could be buying power from them. And I think people think of enrichment and they go, well, that, you know, at one point consumed whatever, 7% or 10% of the US energy production, but that was gaseous diffusion, which is quite a bit different than than centrifuge. Could you just sort of unpack that a little bit for us and under, help us understand sort of what the energy needs would be going forward? Yeah. Well, I think you actually already, you, you answered the question the way you framed it. Uh, so you clearly have done your homework. Basically, um, the death knell to the gaseous diffusion technology vis-a-vis the gas centrifuge was exactly that. Its Achilles heel was it was a humongous consumer of electricity and uh, lots of I'm not sure exactly which is the right data, but people said up to maybe 10% of U.S. electricity during World War II was dedicated. It's not a coincidence, by the way, that the three big gas fusion plants were all built along the TVA hydroelectric power system, right? And I can't think, I, I can't get into much detail, but I would just tell you that by definition, the um, economics uh, and uh, uh, mechanical processes of gaseous uh centrifuge is 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 far favorable and a much more efficient use of energy and that's why that's why paducah failed in 2013 and that's why uh the new machines we think are very promising maybe we could talk a little bit about the doe halu contract that you have but as an introduction to that maybe you just want to give us an introduction like what is halu why do we need it there's an urgency to produce in the u.s because russia makes all of it um, but is there any other hope? Could it be coming from elsewhere? Are we going to see Arano or Urenko doing um, Halu, you know, in, in Europe? And maybe that's just fine for us. Well, Mark, having uh, both in and out of government, uh, one of my cardinal rules is in an interview is not to speak for somebody who I'm not. So um, <laughs> I'll let uh, I'll let Orano and Urenko speak for themselves. Uh, in in terms of Halu, here's a simple way to think about it. Uh, and I said it just a, a moment ago. It's the same physical process. And when you have enriched uranium at four or five percent, it's really quite remote from any weapons applications. And and as I said, ninety percent is uh, basically weapons grade or naval reactor grade HEU. The dividing line between low and high is twenty percent. Don't you know, I don't want to get into the physics of it, but most of the separate work, separative work to get to the 90% actually is, is performed at the lower assays. And so it's actually a reasonable number. But what happens, and this isn't crazy either, is at 20% and higher, you get a whole new set of nonproliferation uh, concerns. You get a whole new set of security concerns, criticality concerns, and therefore um, uh, people don't want to exceed it. Why do they want to get close to it? Well, if you are looking for a higher performance reactor with some of the very attractive benefits of these so-called generation four reactors that are not cooled by light water, but are rather cooled by liquid metal, like Terra Power's Natrium reactor, which is cooled by liquid sodium or Oklo as well, or the high temperature gas cooled reactors like X Energy uh, or the molten salt reactors, these enhanced performance characteristics are achieved at higher assays. So if you want a more power-dense concentrated fuel to, to provide enhanced performance and including certain things like producing high-temperature steam, which can not only support power generation, but also support industrial processes that take that high heat uh, requirement, uh, then you're going to want to have these uh, advanced reactors. And if I want to get advanced reactor fuel without tripping into all kinds of criticality and security concerns, 
I just go just a hair under 20% and go to 19.75%. That's why there's so much interest nowadays in uh, this so-called HALU. And uh, you know, you would know that of the 10 reactor designs that the U.S. Department of Energy selected to support in the Advanced Reactor Development Program, nine of those do, in fact, require HALU. And, uh, and as we just discussed a moment ago, Oklo as well uh, also requires HALU. And you're, I think, uh, entering phase two of this DOE contract, or maybe you, you're already in phase two. Can you talk about when we would hear more about phase three? Yeah, well, for your listeners, so phase one uh, was significant in two dimensions. Number one, it was a 50-50 cost share. And number two, it was actually kind of proof of concept, right? So it was just 20 kilograms. We produced it. We were very proud to deliver it. All this has been ahead of schedule, which is pretty much unheard of in our sector. Uh, and so we then moved directly into phase two. Phase two covers a full year of production. That would be like 900 kilograms, just less than a metric ton. And that will cover a full year uh, production. And that's no longer a 50-50 cost share. Now we're into a cost plus incentive fee. Uh, which is a good thing. And then phase three is optional. And at uh, the Department of Energy's sole discretion, they will need to decide whether and when to exercise uh, that option. In phase three, they have uh, up to three three-year options. So if they exercise all the options, and to repeat, they it's up to them, it's their discretion. But if you add that to phase two, then basically it adds up to overall a 10-year contract. And, and is it, as you get towards... You know, let's say we're a year a year from now and we're coming up on the, you know, you're going to complete phase two. Would they need to make some sort of announcement and agreement or, and that, or that option expires or, or how does that work? You know, presumably if the DOE were to exercise that option, uh, that they would, I presume, make that known uh, to folks. It's, it's going to be watched, Mark, because this fuel is in fact urgently needed. The department has said uh, their requirements look to be on the order of 25 metric tons per year. And uh, this would produce just one metric ton a year. So this is like incredibly valuable stuff. And I think your listeners know, but just to remind, the uh, title to that material is in the Department of Energy. They, The other golden rule is who has the gold makes the rule, right? And so uh, they would be uh, basically the off taker uh, and they will be allocating that material. So I think uh, when they make a decision, if they make a decision, to go into phase three, I'm, I'm quite sure you'll know about it. Okay. There's also an RFP that the DOE has for HALU. Can you describe that process? What are the next steps? What's the potential size of the award? And then how does phase three have anything to do with that, if at all? Uh, great question. Well, uh, again, as I would not speak about a competitor, I'm not going to speak on behalf of the U.S. Department of Energy, uh, but basically under the Inflation Rea uh, Reduction Act, the Congress appropriated, the president signed into law $700 million for HALU. Of the $700 million, $500 million is for the potential purchase of HALU. And uh, the Department of Energy put out a draft RFP. They solicited and received a lot of comment. They have been uh, reviewing that comment and presumably consulting internally about it. And uh, we and everybody else are waiting. Uh, I should note there's actually two RFPs floating around out there, one which would deal with deconversion and one which will handle enrichment. We've been talking about enrichment so far, but it's important, Mark, uh, again, for your listeners to know that you can't put 
uranium hexafluoride gas at 19.75% into a reactor. You got to turn that gas back into a solid form, be it an oxide or a metal, and then fabricate fuel with it. That needs to be done for HALU. And, uh, and so there's a, an expected RFP that's going to come out on that. I think folks are expecting that RFP to come out first, and I think quite soon. Uh, and um, after that would be the RFP for the uh, enrichment. Okay. And you would be, would you be capable of participating in both of those? Well, this is, uh, this is our space. All right? This is where we, we intend to uh, play. And uh, I, again, uh, it, it isn't out yet and it'd be premature for me to say what the company will or will not do, but, but we're certainly very active in this space and have been uh, active participants in the RFP review and comment process so far. Okay, great. And you've talked about, I think, a, a scale-up roadmap for this. If, if all goes well, how quickly you could add capacity. Um, and I think if I worked it out right, it seems like um, you could be making 50 tons a year of HALU within five years. Um, maybe correct me on that math if it's wrong. But I'm just curious, you know, what, what sort of investment would that involve? If you, were to, if you were to do that, if you were to prosecute that plan, how many dollars are we talking about? Right. Well, it does. Of course, the dollars depend on a how big of a plant you're going to build, and b how fast you're going to build it, and c you know things like if the investment comes in the form of uh, capex support directly, uh, that's a lot better than a long-term offtake commitment because uh, capex will spare you the need to basically get private finance, which could for a capital intensive facility be very, very costly. So, uh, so there's a lot of variables in there, but let me just say what we've said publicly many times, which is, uh, within 42 months of a decision to proceed, like a final investment decision that we could build an additional cascade of 120 machines. Each cascade of 120 machines, Mark produces six tons, six, six metric tons of HALU per year. And by the way, that is based on the feedstock of those uh, machines being low enriched uranium of, of, of 4 to 5%. It would take a lot more machines if you were starting with natural uranium. So if you take that as the uh, sort of starting point, the second cascade would take us an additional six months. And after that, because by that time our supply chain is up and humming along, it's two months per cascade. So I can't do math in my head, but I don't know. That may be where you got your, your numbers, but that's that's how we think about it. So within, effectively, within uh, 42 months, we're, we got six tons. Within 48 months, uh, we got 12 tons. Add that to the ton we already got. So, you know, that's 13 metric tons within 48 months uh, of HALU. Uh, so how much would that cost? Well, I mean, it, again, I hate to be contingent, but it, it depends. I, let me just put it to you this way. It takes a few hundred machines to produce HALU at the quantities that DOE has indicated interest in. To make LEU sufficient to make a meaningful dent in the imports now coming from Russia would, would take a few thousand machines. And uh, I would just say without getting into uh, data I, I, I could not share, that the numbers that you are witnessing in the Congress uh, and bouncing around uh, between the administration and the Congress are not crazy numbers to think about not the overall cost of a project, but but the kind of scale of government contribution that would be required. Because to be clear, 
the numbers that are being talked about now when you're into the two plus billion range is not only intended to address the HALU need, but also to address the LEU requirement. What we've seen most recently is everything's like a 50-50 cost share. I mean, is that is it as simple as that, that there's 50% coming from the private sector and 50% from the public, or is it is it multiples of the public spend? Yeah, well, nothing's ever as simple as that, you know, when it comes to these kinds of things. But um, I, I think a lot of people, Mark, think in terms of uh, 50-50 cost share as a, you know, kind of a well-known uh, percentage. And, and it's going to depend on, on, you know, what the requirement is. If, for example, uh, again, not to be contrarian, but if, for example, there were a national security uh, imperative that were uh, uh, being addressed, um, I don't think those do typically have 50-50 cost shares uh, involved. So, and and I, it's not a random comment to talk about national security because uh, it's not what we've been talking in this conversation about so far, but it's probably useful for your listeners to know also that the United States government has a long-term inexorable requirement for enriched uranium uh, for multiple purposes, but the largest, most salient ones are number one, our actual weapons require tritium, which is a an isotope with a half-life of like 12 and a half years, so it attrits and uh, has to be replenished. And for many years, that's been replenished out of high enriched uranium that's been blended down to low enriched uranium, and those low enriched uranium forms uh, are put into targets that are irradiated in Watts-Bar reactor and produce tritium. Uh, and then the other long-term requirement is for uh, high enriched uranium needed for naval reactors. Now, there's been a lot of uh, stockpiled material over many years, but you know they, that is a wasting asset. And in due course, that will me- need to be replaced. And it's worth noting that uh, by law and treaty and so forth, uh, it has to be replaced by what's what's uh, called unobligated uh, enriched uranium, and that means it does not bear peaceful use obligations. And all of the foreign sources of enrichment do uh, have those kind of peaceful use restrictions. So uh, the other salient advantage of centrist enrichment is not only do we have the only NRC license to make HALU, but we also have the only uh, technology that's uh, purely U.S. in origin and able to support national security requirements. That that brings up another question I wanted to ask about, uh, and, and this is, I guess, related to both LEU and, and the national security, is is it the right decision for the government to be putting so much of, so much effort towards HALU when, you know, we need to satisfy these national security concerns, we have a LEU deficiency, and we need LEU to make HALU anyway, so why aren't we attacking those problems with more more funding and, and more legislation? Well, you know, I come out of uh, government and I think one one phrase that we used in, in both the Obama and the Trump administrations was all of the above. And so uh, I, I view this as one of those, Mark. I view this as an all of the above problem. You're quite right. And people often don't pay that much attention that the feedstock for HALU is LEU. So you're going to have increased LEU demand just to support HALU. And then that's quite apart from and in addition to the need to replace Russia. So so I would say we have to tackle both problems. I don't think, I, I think that just as U.S. policy, and I think the Nuclear Energy Institute policy supports both protecting the existing fleet and promoting advanced reactors, uh, that's logic obtains uh, equally well for the fuel to support both of them. 
So um, that's why I'm gratified that the numbers in Congress and, and the numbers from the administration now uh, are of a dimension that I think you can uh, address both the HALU and the LE requirements with uh, you know that uh, substantial level of government investment. What's the role of the loan program office in all of this? It's very interesting. You know, uh, it's a very powerful tool. When I look back on my five and a half years as Deputy Secretary of Energy, uh, among the things of which I'm most proud is that under the sort of Damocles of having the money expire on September 30th, 2011, we got $30 billion of loan guarantee out the door uh, in 2011. Uh, which basically spawned the entire solar PV industry, which did not exist at, an, at, at utility scale up until that time. It supported Tesla and supported all kinds of exciting stuff. It's a, a tremendous driver uh, to clean energy transition. Um, so the loan program has a lot of you know what they call dry powder, and I won't give the numbers on, on their behalf. Uh, some of that uh, dry powder is actually dedicated specifically to nuclear, and at least when I was there, was was dedicated to front-end nuclear. In fact, we approved uh, a loan guarantee for, uh, it was then called Arriva, now it's called Orono. They had a uh, an enrichment project in Eagle Rock that, that was, in fact, approved. So the loan uh, guarantee program can play a very important role. There is a nuance here, which is uh, there are certain statutory provisions uh, called federal support restrictions and kind of the easiest way to describe it is if you get money from one part of DOE, uh, like the Office of Nuclear Energy, you can't get it simultaneously from the loan program. I think the way to think about it, or as it been explained to me, Mark, is, and I do remember this from sitting in those credit review boards, their underwriting process is very familiar from any banker's perspective. You look at debt service coverage ratios. You got to make sure that the statutory uh, standard, as I recall, was there has to be a reasonable prospect uh, of repayment. And if uh, the debt cannot be serviced, but for an action that has not yet been taken by the federal government, that will not pass muster, right? And so therefore, um, there's a bunch of people looking at this in a bunch of different ways. Uh, some people are saying there's so much of a national security imperative in getting up off our backs on enrichment that maybe uh, I think there's been legislation advanced that perhaps uh, modify or even eliminate for some purposes this uh, federal support restriction. But uh, I think the way to think about it in a nutshell is the loan program is a very uh, uh, important potential tool to advance the cause here, but it's got to be sort of um, feathered into the process in a way that uh, uh, it's not kind of uh, canceling out, so to speak, other department programs, if that makes sense. That's interesting. I want to shift a little bit and talk about your maybe the barriers to entry or, or the moat that's around your enrichment business. So you've got a NRC license for Halo production. I'm curious, you know, how much of a of an advantage you think that provides you? Maybe a, a number of years of lead time, or what the challenges would be for others to do that. And then the other one is around enrichment technology. Um, you know, there's these laser technologies that are are moving forward and um, some of those, I guess, don't use LEU as their feedstock. They use the tails, um, which would seem to to solve this problem of, of LEU supply concern. Um, so maybe you could address address both of those. Uh, yeah. So NRC licensing is a very thorough, uh, rigorous process. You know, there's been a lot of comment around this. We were very satisfied 
in our interactions with NRC, they were very rigorous. They were very analytical. They were very disciplined, but they were also, to be candid, uh, efficient. And uh, I don't recall NRC ever missing any of their deadlines in the interactions we had with them. That said, the process to secure an NRC license, uh, and this is appropriate given the nature of the technology and criticality risks and so forth, is 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 lengthy, right? And I, I would say it's measured in years, not months. Again, I'm not going to speak for who's how far down that timeline, but we feel we have a significant time advantage uh, in terms of the NRC licensing. Uh, on the on the other topic you raised, Mark, of laser isotope separation. Again, I'm certainly aware of uh, other efforts that are going on in GLE and so forth. I am not privy to what they're doing, and uh, and so I can't really comment. Uh, I view overall. This is a technology-rich environment, and I think you're always going to have people uh, trying, and they should try, to find disruptive ways to radically cut costs and so forth. And I think time will tell. We, uh, in in this company, tried this for a while in the so-called Avlis pro- process that was looked at by USEC 20-plus years ago. Did not go down that route, but uh, uh, I can't say for sure what will happen uh, in the future for other efforts to go down that road. So maybe as as we wrap it up here, um, th- th- this, by the way, has been great. So thank you so much for, for joining us. As a major stakeholder in nuclear power, right, Centris is hopefully supplying a lot of HALU to all these advanced reactors. What do you think is the biggest bottleneck to new nuclear capacity in the U.S.? Uh, one of the major challenges is over- overcoming first-of-a-kind costs and timelines, you know, nobody's, nobody wants to sign up for the first one, and it seems government backstopping can only go so far. So how do you think this plays out? You frame the question well, and your your question contains the seeds of the response. Uh, and I commend all of your listeners to a really terrific interview with Joe Dominguez, the CEO of Constellation, and my colleague Steve Clements, our friend over at Semaphore. And Joe says, on these things, we can do it. The question is, will we do it? And having gone through all we went through on Vogel, we showed we can do it. Uh, and and there is no question, Joe said this in his interview, that those first-of-a-kind costs, they're always high. I mean, that's just the nature of advancing technology. So yes, uh, a major bottleneck is overcoming the first-of-a-kind costs and getting to the nth-of-a-kind costs. The good news is that it's not rocket science to get to nth of a kind cause, it turns out to have a lot to do with things we call practice. So, you know, I was actually running around visiting uh, Haiyang and, and Sandman, and you see these, you know, swarms of workers, like uh, going from one site to another site, and guess what? You get better. Look at Baraka, uh, the, the four uh, plants built basically with Korean technology and UAE. Each one got built better and faster, and 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 it's a pretty steep and favorable learning curve. So that's that's thing one. Thing two, and it's related, is execute. We need to execute. I'm so proud of our team at Centris. We're a small company, but boy, they killed it. Like notwithstanding all the challenges, and they were real challenges, Mark, during COVID. Uh, we delivered that project on budget, on schedule, and that is everything. I think, and Brett Kugelmas has talked a lot about this in some of his podcasts, you know, there's been a lot of talk about 
the waste issue and various things that have been adduced as possible impediments to the widespread deployment. But I really think a, you know, getting our costs down and B, executing well against a schedule and a budget, uh, given the imperative, and it is an imperative in terms of climate change, in terms of energy security, in terms of the incredible asset you have in nuclear power. Uh, again, Bill Gates summed up really well. He puts a one sentence case in his book on averting a climate disaster for nuclear. It's the only technology that's been shown to work day or night, summer or winter, almost anywhere on earth at large scale uh, and uh, has been deployed successfully for decades. I mean, it's just an incredibly prodigious uh, a producer of carbon-free electrons. And the last thing I'll say is that uh, I commend your readers and listeners also to a great book called Taming the Sun by Varun Savaram, in which he will tell you that you will not be able to max out on wind and solar and intermittent sources of uh, power without having firm, fixed, dispatchable power behind it. And and what better way to do that than with nuclear? And in fact, the natrium reactor being developed by TerraPower does just that in in backstopping uh, solar deployment. Uh, and so I, I think that those two things, a government support in overcoming inexorable first-of-a-kind costs, and B, industry contribution, both in terms of matching some of that government investment, but then in terms of fulfilling their role in terms of project management, excellence and execution, uh, getting the workforce uh, and so forth uh, that they need and the supply chain to support. Uh, these are the things that are make uh, make history. And, and I think, frankly, to be able to save our planet, we, we have no choice but to succeed. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Dan Poneman, CEO of Centris Energy, going to be handing over the reins on January 1st of 2024. So thanks so much for uh, for joining us. We look forward to uh, to your next act. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of TD Cowan Insights.